The outrage meter in Columbus is off the charts this week, with a whole bunch of stories raising questions about what is happening in our capital city. How about we begin our conversation there on This Week in the CLE, the podcast analysis of the news by the team that brings it to you, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with my co-host and special projects manager, Laura Johnston. Hi, Laura. Hi. Happy long weekend. So what do you think? Is there any better place to start today than with politics editor Jane Cahoon, who handled a whole bunch of hot stories? I got to tell you, my jaw was dropping in numerous stories this week. So I kept leaning over to ask her, like, is this what this means? (laughs) So, Jane, does the fever ever dissipate down there? All I can say is it's been a heck of a summer recess at the State House. You wouldn't know they were on vacation. I know. I just asked her that. I was like, wait, are they on vacation? <laughs> Believe it or not. So let's start with uh, Attorney General Dave Yost, who in his brief eight months in office has shown a vigor, it seems, to sticking it to Ohio's urban areas. We all know that Cuyahoga County, like other urban areas, has spent a lot of money on foster care to cope with all the parents addicted to opioids. But if Yost gets his way, the county would never get to recover those costs from the pharmaceutical companies. What's this guy's latest jaw-dropping proposal? Well, he is working with a few state lawmakers on a bill that would basically give him the sole authority over all the opioids lawsuits filed by cities and counties. Um, He says... He is going to represent the state's interest. He's the best person to do this, um, as opposed to the cities and counties all separately running to the courthouses. We've seen a nonstop weakening of the home rule powers for cities and the prohibition against local gun laws or appeal of residency requirements for people who work in cities, plastic bag ban bans. (laughs) Anyone who objects to a city ordinance these days seems to be able to go to the legislature to get the law blocked. Is this just another assault on home rule? Well, many uh, see it that way, uh, and this one feels particularly stinging to a lot of um, cities. There's been a lot of blowback because it's striking right at the pocketbook. You know, it's depriving cities of the right to go after this money when they've been on the front lines of this battle against opioids. You know, we've talked a lot about home rule, but this feels like an escalation to me. I think you'd have a hard time arguing effectively that Cuyahoga County taxpayers have not suffered at the hands of the pharmaceutical companies. The medical examiner's office has been in overdrive for years now with all the extra bodies, the number of kids in foster care is off the charts. And, you know, taxpayers have a legitimate grievance then, which traditionally means you can go to court for a remedy. But Yost wants to take that away. I mean, if there are damages that we suffered here, and and I would argue was we're all Cuyahoga County taxpayers, we have, he wants to take that money away. Um, I can't imagine that the Ohio Supreme Court would affirm that because it seems like it's a pretty big leap. Um, but but if the law passes, you know, we're not sure. Would you expect a pretty serious court fight? Well, there have certainly been some fighting words. I, um, the mayor of Akron was particularly strong, Dan Horgan, um, talking about how this is blatantly against Ohio's Constitution, the home rule provisions. So, yes, I would expect a fight over this. Um, but the Ohio Supreme Court has been has gone different ways on this. I mean, they've they've uh, backed the state largely in terms of like um, 
predatory lending. Um, you know, I think the city of Cleveland, I think, won on the trans fat issue. They were allowed to to ban the trans fat, but uh, they've but they they've, lost on guns. They lost, <laughs> they lost on residency. Residency, lost on a right? Bunch of right. So who knows? Um, so the story said that this goes beyond opioid lawsuits. Um, what other matters could be in play right here? Well, the um, the the proposed um, the bill hasn't even been introduced yet, but there's a provision in there that says if if a lawsuit's been filed in at least five counties, then that should go under the attorney general. I should have also mentioned earlier that this bill would. Um, like 90% of what they collect in settlements, it would be up to the state legislature to decide how that's distributed. So that's an outrage to a lot of local uh, governments. But um, so some people have interpreted the five county thing as um, maybe even applying to lawsuits like the Dr. Richard Strauss sex abuse case at Ohio State or the case of the doctor in Columbus that... Um, overprescribed the, uh, you know, painkillers. Um, Yost's office does not see it that way, and they said if anybody interprets it that way, they're, they're happy to make it clearer that this would just apply to local governments. He says he couldn't even step into that Ohio State case because as Attorney General, he represents Ohio State. You know, the conspiracy-minded <clears throat> could see this as the escalation I'm talking about, whereas in the past... This was about protecting special interest groups in the home rule battle. This is going after the city's pocketbook. This is or the county's pocketbook, the urban area's pocketbooks. It's kind of interesting. But there is some hope, right, in Columbus for people who don't want to see this happen. The governor is not on the side of this. What does he say? Yes, this was, uh, this was uh, very interesting yesterday. After um, a press conference on another matter, DeWine was asked um, about this, and he said, he called it, quote-unquote, a serious mistake to do this. He uh, pointed out how, you know, local governments are the state's partners. They've been on the front lines. It's just not fair to them. And um, later, his spokesman told us that, in fact, if this goes through, he'll veto it. I would also imagine you know, a bunch of rural counties, which usually are sticking it to the cities, are also have been wronged in, in the opioid uh, crisis and probably would want their damages too. And yet it's Eklund, the, the guy from Jaga County who's a sponsor for this. And Jaga County, I believe, is a party to one of the lawsuits. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I there are three prominent lawmakers who are involved in this. So um, we, you know, apparently they agree with Yost's position that this needs to be handled on a statewide basis well they did but maybe they don't with all the outrage that came yeah up. all right let's go to outrage chapter two so china is invading ohio <laughs> <laughs> yes would you like me to explain please <laughs> so uh we had this uh house bill six pass recently which was the nuclear bailout bill which would um take uh, put surcharges on uh, electric customers to prop up the um, first energy solutions nuclear plants and it also would effectively gut the um, the renewable energy mandates um, and uh, there is a group that formed um, immediately to uh, try to overturn this law uh, I believe it's Ohioans against corporate bailouts and um, 
they are circulating petitions right now. It, it hasn't, you know, gotten that far, but they're they're collecting signatures. And then um, the allies of First Energy Solutions have formed their group, um, Ohioans for, I think it's Energy Security. And um, both of these groups, by the way, are LLCs, and they don't have to tell us who's donating to them. But anyway, um, the uh, First Energy Solutions uh, allied group has come out with a million-dollar uh, ad that you just have to see it to believe it. I it's mean, so over the it's top. Like, it's like China is coming after. I mean, it's Ohio. got like a flanks of people marching and, and yeah, lots of red yeah, flags. Yeah, the, yeah. the ominous, um, you know, male baritone voice talking about how What's wrong with male baritone voices. <laughs> well, you know the classic. It's, I mean, yeah, they're just no, so know, effective know, for know, commercials like this, and um, talking about how China is coming after our energy jobs and don't sign this petition. I mean, this is this thing isn't even close to being on the ballot yet, and we have this, as you said, over the top commercial. So, aside from the unreal imagery. There is deep, deep down what appears to be the tiniest kernel of truth. So what are the actual China connections? So there's a guy who um, has natural gas uh, interests. And, of course, they're being disadvantaged by this bill. So he's on the side of overturning the the law. And um, apparently he got some financing from a Chinese bank. And so that's the that's the kernel that they're... <clears throat> that they're using to uh, advance this thing. But interestingly enough, we learned also this week that um, First Energy Solutions, uh, parent company that they're breaking away from in a bankruptcy case, First Energy, uh, got money from the same Chinese bank. So, what, what, what really makes this unusual, though, is that all this money is being spent to affect public opinion for something voters, as you said, are not even facing. I mean, first, we had nonstop commercials when the legislature was considering the bill. And those were all about, hey, call your legislator and say, you know, you want to support jobs or whatever the, the, the mantra was. In this round, they're trying to stop people from signing a petition that would put it on the ballot. So, so if this does get to the ballot, which isn't that hard to do, you've got to imagine that the spending on this will be astronomical. And if it's in 2020, we already have astronomical spending in Ohio. Is there enough room on the airwaves for all of the ads that we would get out of this? They're going to have to get their reservations in quickly for the airtime because there is going to be, I, I mean... We're already bombarded during election time by these ads. People are just going to go nuts there. And there's, you know, there will probably be enough um, misinformation and misleading scare stuff like this that, you know, it could influence people. Yeah, I guess there are some predictions that Ohio won't be the hotbed for political ads. It's been in the past, although... So far, we've seen no indication of that. <laughs> All right, let's move on to outrage number three. So, Jane, let me get this straight. We have a group gaining a foothold in the state by arguing that pro-gun groups like the Buckeye Firearms Association are too weak on gun rights. <laughs> this is a really interesting story that uh, Andrew Tobias reported this week about a group called Ohio Gun Owners headed by a guy named Chris Dorr who um, is just absolutely antagonizing um, not so much the Democrats or the gun control activists, but 
pro-gun rights Republicans, uh, as you said, the Buckeye Firearms Association, a pro-gun group, the governor, uh, Republican lawmakers, um, and uh, he he puts out a lot of videos in which he fundraises, but he also um, uh, he, he caused a bit of alarm by saying, um, after Governor DeWine introduced his package of gun reforms, he uh, Dorr put out this video saying there were going to be political bodies lying all over the ground, and it alarmed the um, governor's office uh, enough that they had the state patrol look into it, and you know there wasn't anything criminal about it, but it was a violent rhetoric. There's lots of violent rhetoric when he <laughs> talks, and, and he gives people uh, cutesy, mean nicknames, too. Um, but one of the most surprising parts of Andrew's story was that legislators are actually cowed by this group. There was one quote that stated simply that the complaints of this nature by groups of this nature actually work. If that's true, how can Mike DeWine have any hope of passing some of the gun laws he's proposed, like a red flag law to take guns away from people in mental duress? Well, you do have to wonder about the fate of some of these proposals. Um, yeah, uh, Chris Dore was, was really like a negotiator on a bill, the bill that they have in the state house now that would, um, allow concealed carry without a permit. He, uh, didn't think that bill was strong enough either. He went after some people because, uh, uh, they wanted to, some lawmakers because they wanted to include a, provision that would require a brochure stating what Ohio's gun laws are. And he said, yeah, this is going to get you killed. (laughs) Yeah, it says it's going to get gun owners killed. So um, anyway, this guy was really on the front lines negotiating this bill. And um, it apparently was enough to have Larry Householder, the Speaker of the House, to refer this bill back to a committee like, you know, stop it in its tracks. Um, So yes, he's having an influence. I'm unclear on the purpose of this group, though. Is it really to influence gun laws? Or is it to raise money by banging the drum on on a controversial issue? What do we know about the people running this group? And what have they done in other states? Well, uh, Chris Dorr has two brothers, and they've formed these groups in about half a dozen other states, including Iowa and Minnesota. And um, in one of their filings, I believe it was Minnesota, they reported raising a certain amount of money and spending 90% of it on fundraising. So uh, the critics of this group say they're just raising money, you know, and they, they've raised some questions about, you know, what they're doing with that money. So we I would imagine <laughs> they had a response to Andrew's story. What was it? Well, as as Laura said, they have some pretty mean nicknames, you know, like they called Mike DeWine a shriveling cockroach and John Houston a big dumb doof and uh, or words to that effect. But um, they uh, Chris Dorr would not speak with uh, Andrew for the story, but he did get in front of his video camera and attack Andrew's manhood by calling him a soy boy. Okay. And, uh, fake right. news and and so on, but but Andrew can Andrew he can take it. Probably wore it as a badge of honor. <laughs> Let's stick with the gun issue. The Democrats seem to be sensing that they have a topic that might rally their base. They unveiled a website this week with a simple simple theme. Jane, what was it? Uh, the um, do something, which is the the chant that Mike Dewine heard in Dayton that that made a real impact uh, on him, and uh, they they've. Um, 
unveiled this uh, website that has all sorts of um, that draws attention to all the bills they've proposed that haven't gotten anywhere. The gun reforms. Um, they have resources to you know contact your lawmakers and put out tweets and. Um, it's pretty impressive. What makes this an interesting idea is that the gun violence issue comes back into national attention so regularly every time there's a mass shooting. Having this website as a central place to rally people every time a gunman goes on the rampage could could be pretty effective in cementing that do-something line into people's consciousness. Are the Democrats really that smart, or did they just kind of <laughs> luck into an idea? Now, Chris, um, I happen to think that they have a very um, intelligent and effective leader, Amelia Sykes. And, um, you know, I, I think it's it's a very smart move, and um, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, we'll be talking about that website, I think, repeatedly. They'll over... probably have some good... Google SEO search, uh, yeah. search engine optimization. Yeah, it was one of those ideas when you saw it, you thought, okay, that's that's smart. That's gonna that'll have long legs. Um, Governor Mike DeWine actually is trying to do something with regard to guns. He's proposed the red flag law and universal background checks, but met with resistance from legislators. This week, though, he announced something he could do unilaterally while also seeking some more help from legislators. Jane, what's that? Well, he wants to uh, correct deficiencies in the background check system, uh, both in the federal and state databases that they use. Uh, not every warrant or protection order is is entered. And so you have a situation, uh, one that was described was a guy went in, bought a gun, passed the background check waiting period, and then his wife came back with this civil protection order that she had against him. Um, but he was, you know, allowed to buy a gun. So he wants to plug those holes by creating this statewide system. Um, I think he's put John Houston in charge of that, the lieutenant governor who's in charge of, you know, digitizing everything. And um, You would think it would be hard for legislators to justify not requiring those warrants to be put into this new system, but that doesn't mean they won't, right? Um. Correct. And the Buckeye Firearms is is seems to be in favor of this, too. It, it, it does seem like a no-brainer, but it, it's... We've been here before. <laughs> we've been here before, yes. All right, let's get back to outrage. We're a big source of it. Everybody hates robocalls, and over the past year, robocalls have become a good bit more of a nuisance. Kind of amazing, Jane, that so little has been done about them. But we're finally getting some action, right? We can expect this to perhaps reduce this source of outrage? Uh, well, perhaps. Um, we have an agreement um, forged by attorney generals uh, all around the country with, uh, I think it's about a dozen phone companies that are going to um, provide technology to out these lowlifes who, who scam people through these robocalls, and it would help people identify them. Um, and, you know, also, I think, anti-spoofing technology. Like many people, I don't answer the phone to a number I don't know. <laughs> so to make robocalls easier to spot, phone companies are marking these calls as possible fraud or actually telemarketer on the caller ID. Um, I wonder whether people knowing the calls will be fraud will want to answer them just to mess around with these people. What do you think? Well, I think it's everyone's fantasy to get <laughs> in the face of these scumbags who do this. So um, I suppose that's 
that's Some possible. But extra but time on you might just hands. be talking to an automated voice. Oh, I don't. I don't yeah, know. A lot of them but, are. Uh, All right, Jane, let's wrap up our conversation with some capital city gossip. The wife of an Ohio Supreme Court justice and son of the governor filed for divorce on the grounds of adultery. It's not something you see every day in a seat of power. Surely this was a talker down there. What does the divorce filing reveal? Well, it reveals that uh, the justice's wife um, did accuse him of adultery and cruelty and um, she basically lays out uh, the fact that he comes from a prominent, wealthy family, and they've been accustomed to a, a pretty lavish lifestyle, and now she's having trouble paying her bills. I think they shut off her cable. And, and the Wi-Fi, right? Um, and the Wi-Fi, yeah. And um, so she's asking for a certain uh, amount of money to, um, to help with that. So the infidelity accusation, I think, is what raised a lot of eyebrows. It's interesting that she would put that into such a high-profile divorce filing. Are there any details of what exactly she alleges? No. (laughs) (laughs) The the allegation is put out there, but it's not... um, There there are no details about that. It mainly... uh, It talks more about, you know, what the justice earns and and how uh, he should be providing more support. Um, the, the, a statement on behalf of the justice um, seemed to suggest there were falsehoods and that uh, he's not going to engage in this gossip and he's really not going to be saying anything about it. You'd think, though, that he would have tried to settle this amicably without mm-hmm. having this hit. I mean, th- look, people are talking about it. Oh, it's, definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. Well, Jane, I, I wish we could keep talking because it's always fun to chat with you about. I love my job, stories. Chris. <laughs> I, I can see that. Uh, but we do have to move on. In a moment, we'll talk about some more outrages, this time based in Cleveland. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Hey, are you a lawyer? Do you care about the Cuyahoga County Courts? Then how about giving us a buck a week to get text messages from our court reporter, Corey Schaefer, about what is going on behind the scenes in the Justice Center? Corey's messages every day are fascinating, and he gets around. He knows things no one else seems to. You can check out his messages for two weeks for free. Sign up at cleveland.com slash project text. We've arrived at the Cleveland Conversation on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with co-host Laura Johnston. And in this segment, Cleveland City Hall reporter Bob Higgs. We had lots of things to be outraged about in our first segment, Bob, but Columbus hasn't cornered the market on outrage, has it? Not at all. You know, this is summer. It's supposed to be everyone has a good time, but this week was loaded with outrage. Well, let's start with the outrage about tax abatement. Cleveland has just learned that a state agency created the deer with air pollution many years ago has the will and the power to allow a developer of a $175 million project near the West Side Market to pay no taxes on it, something that's never happened before. Bob, what is this agency, and how did we get here? The agency's the Ohio Clean Air Development Authority, and it's been around for some time, was created in the early 70s and in the wake of the creation of the EPA and clean air laws. And the idea is it's to promote clean air as a resource that has to be preserved. And it has the ability to grant all kinds of economic incentives. It can do very attractive financing um, for developers and reward projects that benefit the environment. It also, though, can grant 
abatements on taxes uh, and much longer than what Cleveland would typically do. In this case, it would be for up to 30 years. And that's part of the outrage. So if this has been around since the 70s, why have I never heard of them trying to take tax money before? This is the first time it's come into Cleveland. It's, I talked to city people yesterday about it. They have never had a case before where you had a, a project that was looking to get this kind of uh, tax relief. And some of it has to do with the, the kind of projects that have to be done to qualify for it. Uh, initially, we were talking about things like cleaning up electric power plants and things like the coal plants and uh, making industry more uh Air, air friendly to the environment and now it's become something that has spread out into things like real estate development projects that's what you have here so this is the first time cleveland's had one of these so what how much is it going to cost cleveland or uh, could cost the tax portion they figure could cost 57 million over the 30 years and that would be the city school district the libraries um the port authority anybody who's got a tax levy on the uh, on the rolls for Cleveland itself. You know what, what strikes me about this. I've never heard of this. I mean, I've been around a long time, and and whenever a tax abatement has come up, it's been local, locally decided with lots of local debate, and it's usually been in exchange for a promise of jobs of some sort. It's economic development. It has been purely local. There's never been that I know of an outside agency unilaterally saying, yeah, you're going to build that expensive project. You're free and clear of the taxes so that doesn't matter what the, the demand is of the city, the county, the schools, because of the impact of this thing, it's scot-free. I, it just it kind of blows my mind that this could happen with with almost no discussion. I mean, they almost voted on this, right? It was only because the city found out about it on the QT at the last minute and raised hell that they've postponed the vote till next month. It was literally within hours of being approved. Um, at, the, at the last minute in an August meeting, they got three letters that came in to the this authorities, to the approving board, and that caused them to table it. Those were letters of objection. But part of the city's anger is no one tipped them off from the, the state agency that this was even on the agenda. I don't know. I, we, we talked in the earlier about what Yoast wants to do with the opioid lawsuits where we would take them over and, and the money wouldn't come here. Uh, you could argue you're seeing an entirely new attack on cities with these two moves. Up until now, it's been about blocking laws and, and special interests, but this really is going after cash, cold, card, cold, cold hard cash that the cities need to operate on. And, and again, most of the state government right now is in the hands of Republicans, all of it, and this is a Democratic stronghold. And you do have to wonder, is that what's motivating this? Is that what they're wondering down at City Hall? They won't say that publicly, but the conversations I've had with people over there, there's just all kinds of suspicions as to where this is coming from because it, real estate projects like this weren't what the law was contemplating when they put no, it in. No, it was for scrubbers. It's for and, scrubbers at power plants yeah. and things like that. And this thing moved through without them getting even a heads up from this state authority. The mayor's furious over that point, and he views this as nothing less than an attack on 
constitutionally protected home rule powers. Uh, it would not at all surprise me if this ended up being another home rule lawsuit. All right, let's turn to another outrage. There's an auditor's finding that all sorts of Cleveland City Council members were failing to appropriately document their expenses. Bob, let's take this a step at a time. First, how did we find out about this? Um, I'd been bugging them knowing this audit was out there. The There are people with city council staff who recognize that as soon as they got it, it was a public document. And so because we were dogging them about it, they got us a copy of it, which is part of what led to some of the outrage that you'll hear about here. And why was the audit done in the first place? Um, it came after our reporting on Ken Johnson's expense reports, which for years were routinely claiming the 12,000 or I'm sorry, the, the $1,200 maximum per month reimbursement that's available to members of council. And there's some question as to how much documentation was necessary. And was he even close to it? It looks like it was really sketchy. Uh, so Kelly ordered Kevin Kelly, the council president ordered this review of the whole system. That was in spring. This auditor started doing their work. Kelly himself wasn't an offender, right? Though who else? Now, Kelly was an offender, and there were ten others who were offenders. Uh, and how many are there altogether? There's seventeen total. So eleven of the seventeen were named in the audit. Now the the six who were not may also have been offenders because there were other instances where they found that the council rules weren't being followed for reimbursement, but they were they were listed as multiple because so many people had done them. So there, uh, there it could be that all of them were offenders. You know what makes this an outrage? It, it's that it took an auditor to figure it out. With all the attention that's been paid to Ken Johnson's accounts, I mean, and there's been a lot of attention, you'd think that Kelly, who's a lawyer, could have figured this out all on his own, that his own expense accounts were lacking. I mean, wouldn't you know deep down if you weren't itemizing your, your bills correctly? And what about the rest of them? Wouldn't you think they're all face voters? There's this move to reduce the number of council people in which, you know, Johnson is the poster boy. Don't you think once you saw all that, you'd say to yourself, you know, I'm really not itemizing the way I should. I'm going to start doing it. But no, we have to wait for an auditor to come out and say, you guys aren't doing this right at all. Well, and you know, there's some members of council who are really angry about this because they felt like they were blindsided. They didn't see their audit before we saw the audit in some cases. But one of them told me his real complaint is if they weren't meeting the technical requirements in the council's rules for getting reimbursement, why weren't they being told about that? Because this is something that's clearly been going on for years. I mean, the, the, the Ken Johnson expense reports that we reported on that, that looked odd, uh, the, the approval that those got w was somewhat routine, and that's how they conducted themselves. And so in this case, like mileage is a good example. They're supposed to have a mileage log, shows where they drove, how many miles it was. It's supposed to be submitted in addition to the claim for the reimbursement. One member of council said they haven't asked me for that mileage log in, in months. But I like that Kelly tried to downplay the findings and said that they show most people are mostly following the rules, which, sure. What do other <laughs> council members say? Well, I think that the, the frustration here is that most of them aren't – if you look at the, the the things that they got dinged on, for the most part, they're very technical things. This is the wrong form to be filing. This is – this 
information was lacking. But when you look at their expense reports, we looked at all of them from all of last year. And for the most part, they're well-documented expense reports that show there's an effort to comply. And I think that's what they're most frustrated with, is if we weren't doing it right in the first place, why weren't we told? And why now is this making us all look bad? Uh, and it's it's simply being lax with the rules. Well, then then credit Kelly. You know, he got the audit done. It's the first time since Jay Westbrook was president they've really looked at this. And credit with him, credit him for getting this. And now maybe they'll get what they want. They'll get very specific guidelines on how to go forward, and hopefully rigorous enforcement where they don't get paid if they fail to do it. The other thing to keep in mind, it's it's symptoms of a problem in the system. With, with the things that drew attention to Ken Johnson's report, we were talking about 1200 bucks a month for more than a decade, uh, more than $200,000 total. With, with the things this audit found, there, there's nothing in there that is a big expense dollar-wise. So it's not like someone's getting rich off of this. But it does raise a question of uh, public accountability, public transparency, and how seriously are they taking the rules? All right. Let's let's take a break for a moment <laughs> from the outrage stories, and let's talk about one that's not an outrage. The electric scooters have arrived. And so, Bob, I expect you've rented one. I have not rented one, and I'm not sure that I will rent one, having seen the potential of what can happen to your body when you get tossed from one going almost 15 miles an hour. So, they, so how did they get here? Uh there's four vendors. The first one to get here was Bird, and the others are finishing up their paperwork and dropping them through the week. Um, but they started dropping them off downtown Ohio City, Tremont on Monday. Uh, I went down around the Justice Center on Monday, and there were already people riding them all over the place. Um, and and it's really simple. You you have the phone app. You hit your phone app and log in the the scooter, and it turns it on, and away you go. Uh, there could be outrage with this before we're done. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the The question here is, will they be such a disruption as to create safety hazards uh, and general irritation among the regular public? Yeah, I, I mean, we need the day to arrive where we're doing things like closing down half of Chester Avenue to turn it into bike and scooter lanes and, and things like that. Because mixing those up with cars and pedestrians um, it just seems like we got a recipe for some injury, and we're not a city that is at all friendly for this. Why not? Have, we got all these roads that were built for a whole lot more people. Why aren't we really talking about closing them down and setting them aside for this kind of thing? Well, it'll be interesting to see where they end up taking these because, you know, there's not like the racks like with the UH bikes that you have to park them in. So I wonder if people are going to start taking them to the metro parks and like zooming on the bike path or down by the lake or I, I don't know it'll be interesting to see where they end up well you've taken every possible form of transportation on the water have you ridden one of these I on the road? no no i have no desire to like I, I would just rather ride my bike and then i'd have my helmet because i mean like who like carries around their bike helmet to like just in case they decide to go on a scooter. Well, I did. I saw somebody in University Circle riding one um, yesterday or the day before, and he had a helmet on. So I, there, there are people that are aware of that if you stop short at 15 miles an hour, you could seriously hurt yourself and are taking the precautions that they, uh, they need. Well, Bob, thanks. It's always good to catch up. In a moment, we'll move our conversation to the Justice Center. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
We've got a new newsletter, a free newsletter, that you might want to start reading if you want the latest on how the 2020 presidential election is going. It's called The Flyover, and what makes it unique is it's focus on the states that will decide the election. Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Indiana, and Illinois. The newsletter covers issues that are relevant to the voters of flyover country, the issues that will determine the election. Reading it puts you into the know. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash newsletters. And again, it's free. And we're back. It's This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston. And in this segment, crime reporter Adam Faris and courts reporter Corey Schaefer. How many stories are you guys missing today because we dragged you into this podcast? Too many. I don't even want to think about it. (laughs) We've had a podcast filled with outrage so far, so let's keep it going. Adam, if prosecutors are to be believed, we've had a thriving illegal drug operation in the Cuyahoga County Jail, and it's been run by the guards. Yeah, so yesterday, uh, yesterday's uh, indictment was a pretty pretty interesting uh, 30-count racketeering indictment, and... uh, um, it, it involved at least, I think seven, seven guards, six inmates, um, and gone on for at least about a year and a half, two years, something like that. And it, it seemed like they were just pretty much running drugs in there whenever they wanted, uh, heartless felons who are in the jail were directing these guards to, um, you know, bring in whatever drugs, cell phones, cell phone batteries, vape pens, whatever they wanted uh, to be brought into the jail for these to distribute to the inmates. Um, and uh, another part of it that wasn't uh, wasn't uh, fleshed out too much in the indictment was that there were people on the outside, some relatives and a girlfriend, some of the, the inmates that were facilitating the, the money transfer to the to the guards. I should point out that not only is Adam taking time away from the stories that he's got to cover, he's also recovering from a cold, which accounts for his scratchy voice. Laura. Sorry about that. <laughs> if the guards did this, they took enormous risks. Did they make much money? And why would they do something they'd so likely be caught at? Well, uh, my guess is they didn't think they'd be caught or they wouldn't have done it for so long. Uh, this went on for quite a while. So probably just got bolder as time went on. Huh? E- yeah, I, I, I think we can probably glean that from, from the charges. Um, and uh, they did make a considerable amount of money. And not every single transaction was documented in the amount of money they made. But I think one was, what, Corey, 750 bucks, And one was, I think, 1500 for some fentanyl pills and... Yeah. Cell phones. And then there was also, uh, I noticed reading in the indictment that there was a uh, $3,000 payment yeah. from one of the inmates to uh, uh, to a guard. Uh, and one of the other things I wanted to point out about that indictment that stuck out was that the guards had sold drugs to two different inmates who overdosed. One was the drugs were directly linked to the overdose, and another one they actually sold drugs to an inmate who had overdosed and nearly died about a month before, you know, the wow. chart. They, they found that they this guy had been selling it to him. Go ahead. And uh, we also, you know, noticed in the indictment that there were a lot of uh, defendants, potential defendants, people involved in this thing that were not named. There were a lot of John Doe's, a lot of unindicted co-conspirators. Um, and I think we're, we're probably going to find out who those people are eventually, uh, and they could probably even be charged as well soon, too. Do you so, suspect they're cooperating? Is that is that it, or they just don't have the evidence to charge them yet? 
Uh, it could be. It could be either. It could be both. It could be one or the other. I don't know. I mean, I we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. You know, since the Heartless Felons gang first popped up, it was mainly in the beginning in juvenile detention center some years ago now. Um, it's become one of this this powerful, malevolent force in Cleveland. I mean, you, you both have written plenty of stories uh, about different elements, different acts of violence. Do we have any idea how they persuaded the guards to play ball with them to the start? Uh, you know, for the guards, this would seem like they're giving away their authority over the jail. Um, I don't, I mean... Whenever you think of gangs in Cleveland, I mean, the Heartless Felons is the first one that comes to your mind because it's the most prominent one. Um, you know, it was started in early 2000s in the juvenile detention system where, you know, kids from different street gangs were coming in and they were all getting put in the same facility. And then they were ended up going to like youth prisons around the state. And, uh, you know, a couple of them teamed up and you know, from these little smaller gangs teamed up and joined forces and created this, the heartless felons. And as these original founders grew older, uh, they got released. They came back to the streets. They recruited more people. They got in trouble. They went back to prison. They recruited more people in prison. And it just has grown to be this giant, this, like you said, this giant force that is, uh, super powerful in the streets. And, with a lot of blood on their hands, right? I yeah, mean, I mean, a bunch of big cases that we've seen involving them. Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones that I think shows, you know, the power and, and the fear that they that they can inflict is, you know, the the barbershop shooting in Warrensville Heights from 2015. Um, you know, guy walks into a barbershop and kills three people, shoots like six more, I think. And while that case is going on, one of the guys who witnessed it and ran out was outside the barbershop and saw the shooter walk in and walk out ends up getting killed during the case while he's after he's come forward as a witness he's got a separate drug case and he's walking out of his house to go to court for a court date and someone walks up into his uh, driveway and shoots and kills him and this was a witness to a triple murder and it was a huge deal and you know to this day witnesses and heartless felons cases are very skittish to come forward and especially to testify in open court. And a lot of times you see people will tell the police one thing in the interview when they're in the, in the locked room and then they get out into court and they refuse to testify when the defendant's sitting there and there's some people in the back, which makes it all that much more remarkable that jail guards would put themselves in a position of vulnerability to these guys. I mean, the minute the jail guard, does this, you know, brings in the drugs, makes the deal. They're kind of owned by the the heartless felons, and and that doesn't end well. Yeah. There's a little bit of a history of that in the jail, too. There was a sort of a smaller case that we had written about years ago where a corrections officer was disciplined for sort of harassing another inmate on behalf of a heartless felon's gang member over a, a koofy i believe wow. um so this goes back yeah and i think adam can, adam can probably talk more about this but you know these jail guards don't make a lot of money it's a terrible job and we have low unemployment right now so you don't have people desperate for these jobs right and so you know you're making terrible money the job is super hard you have an inmate offering you a little extra cash on the side you have the means you probably don't think 
you're going to get caught, that the administration is going to catch you doing this, that the, the jail administration is going to catch you. Because they haven't because caught they anything else. Because they seem super competent, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, so it's a it's a recipe for, for this kind of stuff. Yeah, and the, one of the guards charged in that case is going through bankruptcy court. Yeah. So. All right. Well, the guards accused in this case are not the only ones in trouble, right? You heard tell of a guard who tried to extort his colleagues to, to get fabricated testimony that would protect them against charges in an unrelated matter? Yeah, so he was uh, accused. This was Idris Fareed Clark, who uh, we got video of him pepper spraying an inmate strapped to a, a restraint chair, and he was charged with second-degree felony in that case. And uh, called, uh, texted a, a co-worker, another corrections officer, and basically said, I've got damning videos of you doing the same stuff. I've got videos of other guards doing this stuff. Uh, so uh, you have to testify on my behalf that we weren't trained and that, you know, my my case wasn't the worst of the worst of it. Uh, and if you don't testify on my behalf, I'm going to release the release the videos to the public. So is there evidence that this guard does actually have proof of a colleague abusing prisoners in a video we have not heard about previously? So there's another one out there? Um, possibly. There's um, a re- So the FBI recorded a phone call between uh, Mr. Clark and the, uh, the other corrections officer who was not named. And he basically said, I'm, I'm working with, you know, other people. I've got other videos. We don't know if that's true yet, but uh, it could be a bluff. It could not be. I don't know. So what happened to this guy? He was free uh, pending his first case. Is he still free? No, he's a $100,000 bond in Geauga County Jail, um, obviously not being housed in Cuyahoga. And the prosecutors are looking to revoke his bond entirely because of this. All right, with all this misbehavior by the guards, I guess it's not a surprise that the inmates are getting restless, and you had a story this week that got into just how restless. Yeah, there's, a, a, I believe, a 18, somewhere around there, um, 18 um, inmates who basically said, we're not, we're not going back into our cells over these uh, red zoning, which is forced lockdowns. Uh, forced lockdowns in their cell. In their cell. Nothing to do. With and, nothing to do, not for disciplinary purposes, but because... They don't have enough staff there. Um, it's one of the big problems that's, that they've been trying to solve for a year. Perhaps the biggest. Um, and so the, this particular pod of inmates, uh, I think they were locked down for 9 to 11 days leading up to that. Um, and uh, peaceful protests. They sat outside their cell and said, we're not going in. We're sick of this. Nothing you know, nothing violent happened. They ended up going back in their cell, but it was just to show like a, a statement of we're we're not you know, we're sick of this. We're sick of being treated this way. So um, that was a pretty big deal. Also want to point out that we asked for that um, information very shortly after it happened and the county would not provide it to us for about a month. Okay, it's been eight months since the U.S. Marshals blasted the jail for how often red zoning occurs. It's still occurring. Why hasn't the county ended this horrible practice? I mean, is it do you hear that it's getting better? No, uh, I don't. Uh, it still happens. It still happens pretty regularly. Um, I think the county is trying to take steps to to eliminate red zoning. I think Armin Budish in his state of the county speech earlier this year said the goal was to eliminate it by the end of the year. Um, they're hiring more corrections officers, but it hasn't been enough to to get them to the point where they can end red zoning. 
I think um, I think they feel like they've reduced it. We're supposed to yeah. be getting some information soon that shows it's down, but it but it is remarkable. I mean, we, you know, we've all worked elsewhere. This is just not a common practice in modern jails that, that locking people down who haven't done anything wrong. And it, you know, if there's an escape, if there's a security condition, they do, but simply because you don't have enough people. It is, yeah, it, it, Corey's right. It's, it's a bad job. The pay's not great. Unemployment's low, so you don't have people that are desperate for work. So it's hard, but, but man, it's just, I get it. If I were the inmates and I were locked in my cell for hours at a time, I'd be protesting. And think about it from a corrections officer standpoint. You, you have 100 to 200 inmates under your watch. If one of them tries to do something and you're at the other cell, you get in trouble for it. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a lot of stress on both the inmates and the corrections officers, and it's causing um, – I mean, it's the root cause of most of the problems at the jail. Inmates aren't the only ones fed up, are they, Corey? A couple of East Cleveland residents are, are trying to cope with some pretty strong dissatisfaction with the cops in their city. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is a uh, citizen's petition. This is this interesting law that the state has where a citizen can – basically file an affidavit with a court asking a judge to issue an arrest warrant if they have direct knowledge of a crime. And what this petition says, these these two women, are Mariah Crenshaw and Ivy Willis, is that for a long time, East Cleveland police officers did not have the required training to keep their, to, to renew their police, basically their police license every year. Uh, and therefore, they should have not been operating as police officers. And the fact that they were in making these arrests and stopping people and writing tickets, and they were basically impersonating police officers <laughs> because they weren't technically certified. So it's the the process uh, to be a police officer. You have to go through the training, and then that's when you get, um, you know, your you're a certified police officer you're certified trained police officer and then you have to get a commission with through a local department it's like you can't just go through the department and then be like i'm a police officer now you have to actually be hired by a law enforcement agency and to keep that license every year you it's like uh, a lawyer getting you know continuing legal education cle uh, you have to get a certain number of training every year the state mandates that um from year to year and apparently um, you know, a couple of residents in East Cleveland started looking into this uh, with regards to one officer. And apparently, you know, according to their affidavit, they found uh, as many as 40 officers didn't have wow. the training. And uh, I think the entire department has less than 60 officers. Oh so this God. is like two out of three officers <laughs> in the department didn't have these. Uh, so I will point out that the state it says that they're all complied that they're all in compliance right now that they've been brought back up um so there's some disagreement over whether or not what the remedy should be here and i think that's uh you know this this went to court last week and you'll see um another hearing is set for november um to determine i think what happens next so how do these citizen lawsuits work and how much power do people have to force this kind of thing um, you have to have direct knowledge of a crime. So we saw this is the same thing that some of the activists with uh, the shooting of Tamir Rice and the Euclid police officer, um, you know, they, they tried to use these things to try to get arrest warrants for the police officers. Um, 
you know, it's not like you can just file something and then you get an, an arrest warrant. Generally what happens, the, the way the law is written, if the judge finds that you are not, like you didn't file it in bad faith, like I couldn't just file something and say you should arrest Chris Quinn because he, you know. As much as you'd like to. No comment on that. <laughs> um, you can't just do that. Like you have to have actual knowledge of a crime and the judge either issues the warrant or refers it to a prosecutor to review, which is generally what happens in these things. I think that's happened in all three cases where the judge, uh, you know, refers the matter to a prosecutor and then the prosecutor will review the case and has to issue a determination. So, I mean, you, you can technically, if, if you have a knowledge of a crime and nothing's being done about it, you can file this affidavit and a prosecutor has to at least look at it if they hadn't before. It's just the travails of East Cleveland. I mean, you, you look at it's just nonstop. Their money problems. What uh, what what uh, serial podcast revealed about them? It's just a, a city and a police department that's constantly in trouble. Well, look, thank you guys, Adam. I hope you feel better. And Corey, I didn't realize I dragged you in here on your day off. So go enjoy your day off, and we'll uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time. Coming up, columnist Layla Tassi talks about a viral column she wrote about what you might call an onerous demand on Cleveland school kids for supplies you're listening to this week in the CLE. We're less than two weeks from the beginning of the Brown season. If you want to be on top of everything going on with the team, you should consider a subscription to Cleveland.com Football Insider. For a buck a week, you get text messages each day from lead Browns reporter Mary Kay Cabot, links to every piece of content we have published on the Browns, and best of all, exclusive content not available anywhere else. I'm talking access to YouTube video chats with Mary Kay, insightful stories, and even Brown scavenger hunts. Be on top of your favorite team. You can try it out for two weeks for free. Subscribe at cleveland.com slash project text. All right, we're in our final segment of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Laura Johnston. And for this discussion, columnist Layla Atassi. And Layla, you've been on one hell of a hot streak since taking on this new role a few weeks ago. Your hottest column to date is about a demand by a Cleveland school that student brings in a boatload of supplies. And we're not just talking pencils here, right? That's right. You know, so this came about when I saw a post on Facebook from a mother who was sending two of her daughters for the first time uh, to the Girls Leadership Academy. And um, and really, the list was like 70 items long. And it included things that were just bonkers to me. I mean, we're talking about like four cans of Lysol per kid. And I understand, you know, that these are there are certain consumables for the classroom that every kid has been always responsible for bringing in a box of Kleenex or something. But this was like four boxes of Kleenex, four cans of Lysol, four containers of Clorox wipes, and then like six reams of, of paper and 48 pencils. And then, you know, every girl had to bring her own uh, stapler and staples. And, you know, it was just, you know, oh, f- several, several trifold science boards for for projects and poster boards, things that, you know, would carry you the whole year and then some. And it was just it blew the mind to even think of where a school could store all of these supplies, let alone that the kids would use them up in a year. And so, you know, as I rolled this over in my mind and you know, compared it to other to my own school district supply list, it just seemed like, you know, we are far beyond the basics for us for a district that where the children are mostly in poverty and families are struggling all the time to put food on the table. 
you know, and by the time I added up the cost of this list, it was like $150. And then I cross-referenced my Target shopping with my Walmart shopping. And, and it was even more expensive at Walmart. And, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe the things that they were asking. And it seemed so tone deaf for a district that serves children in poverty to be asking families for so much. So Layla, like you, I'm a mom of elementary school kids and every mom knows you've got to send in the supplies. But even for kindergarten, you just need one of those Clorox wipes. And we're talking older grades here. So and and thankfully, my district does it online for cheaper than I would buy it all separately at Target. Um, Does the school district do anything like that? And I mean, you looked at other other uh, lists in the district, right? And this just is double what it needs to be. Yes, this was the Warner Girls Academy Leadership Academy. So I compared this list to the Douglas MacArthur Girls Leadership Academy, also a CMSD school. And that list was about half as long. It still asked for some of the classroom consumables, but half as many, which was much more reasonable. Half as many pencils, paper, folders, you know, poster boards, all those things. And um, also I compared it with other districts and who, that were just basically down to the basics, you know, the, the basic folders. And this is an eighth, seventh and eighth grade list. So it was easy to compare. Um, but, you know, you mentioned how the school you can buy in some districts, you can buy it online. I'm not sure if they offer that in CMSD schools, but in our district, you can you can opt to buy an entire package that, you know, and I think it's about $50 for each of my kids' classes. Mine too, yeah. Yeah. And this, I can't imagine that they would offer a box of supplies for $150, which is what well, I would Well, the trifolds might have a hard time fitting in that box. <laughs> That's a good point. Exactly. Why don't they just like wait and say, when you get to the science fair, you're going to need to buy this board? Right. I mean, you mentioned having the storage space to store all this, but like maybe they wouldn't need four cans of Lysol for each kid if there wasn't a giant flu outbreak. That's true. And it also occurred to me that you know, I'm, I'm most likely some children wouldn't bring anything. And so if some brought more, maybe that would even it out. But it's just so unfair to put a burden on any family like this. Uh, when, you know, all every child in the district gets free or reduced lunch and free breakfast because of the widespread poverty in the in the district. Well, you got a huge amount of response from this. I mean, the numbers of the story were crazy. I, is there any way that people could donate? Was that ever brought up from some of these readers saying, I want to buy a stapler for a kid? And what was the general reaction of readers? Were there, was, did, they have, did they share your moral outrage? Well, I think that, yes, in fact, more than I expected. I, I kind of thought that this would you know, be a passing uh, kerfuffle <laughs> or that maybe I was the only one who was fired up to this degree. But I mean, I've, tons of readers responded, called, emailed. And I think this hits a nerve with parents because... You know, they they send in the supplies and, and also there's the sense that, you know, our tax dollars are paying for a certain amount of, you know, support in the school district. And then you have to augment that with such a long list of supplies. And then, Laura, to your point, there were there were some readers who called or who emailed and and was and were offering assistance, particularly for this one family. Um, but, you know, others pointed out places in the community that have, you know, kind of the fill the bus drive or, you know, backpack drives. You know, the Boys and Girls Club, obviously, every year gives out backpacks filled with supplies. There are places where families can get support. And the school district, in their response to me, pointed out also that they do offer support for families in this way and that they give out supplies regularly. Well, 
I wanted to ask you about the school district yeah. response. Was there any sense of contrition that, that they meant too far and they should fix this going forward? No, it was more or less that I kind of felt that the district was, I mean, they pointed out the ways in which the the principal of this of this school is very compassionate toward the students and is very involved in, in fundraising activities and, and that you know, the school is hosting a, um, a uniform drive and kind of pointed out all that stuff and how much the district goes out of its way to support families in need. And I, my, my point to that was I do not doubt or question the goodwill and benevolence of the Cleveland Municipal School District at all. And I know that those teachers and those administrators know better than anyone what these parents and families face, which is why exactly this made me so outraged, because (laughs) it just seemed like, why, when you know all of that, and you see it up close every day, why would you send home this list with these eighth grade girls who are old enough to understand the, the struggle that their families face and how painful is that for these girls to give their mother this list and know their mom can't buy it. And, you know, they have got a week to supply it. So all of that, the, my conversation with the district kind of went along those lines, like the district saying to me, well, you know, we love our kids. And I'm saying, I know you do. So why would you do this? <laughs> you know, so we, know, we did not really see eye to eye on that. And there's know. no real resolution then, right? No, not really. No, no. I mean, I guess we'll see next year if the list shortens a little bit. For I'll bet it family. does. We'll see. We'll see. I want to thank you, Layla, for, for continuing the general sense of outrage that we've had on this <laughs> podcast today. Laura and I are going to have to go take a mindfulness class just to calm ourselves down. <laughs> Thanks, too, to Jane Cahoon, Bob Higgs, Corey Schaefer, Adam Faris. And Laura, thank you. This Week in CLE publishes most Thursdays. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We'll be back next week. 